I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel, which comes to us this morning from Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 42. Hear these holy words. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul to much more will, to mu how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs on your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set man against his father, daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to those little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, None of these will lose their reward. This is the word of God for the people of God. We do want to welcome those who are streaming online or watching on television, especially those in our retirement centers and, uh, and hospitals, to those around the state or maybe even on the water this morning. I know they're tuning in as well. <laughs> Today, I'm, I'm preaching from uh, the lectionary. And many of you know that the lectionary is a pre-planned cycle of scripture. It goes through uh, a cycle of A, B, and C every three years. An Old Testament lesson, a New Testament lesson, an epistle, a psalm, lots to choose from uh, where you want to go with a sermon. So this is not part of any kind of sermon series because there's really no way that anyone would want to preach on this. <laughs> Reverend Vic Nixon, uh, our former senior pastor whose life we celebrated this week, uh, he used to say that he really enjoyed preaching the lectionary because it would challenge him to preach on something that he normally would not preach on. Matthew, of course, is the first book of, of the New Testament, but it was probably the second to be written. Scholars recognize that it borrows source material from, from Mark, 
and from the sayings uh, of a source containing sayings of Jesus known as just Q. The author of Matthew shows an understanding of Jewish culture and religion that's technically, it's really not found in the other Gospels. It was probably written about 80 to 90 AD, possibly for a larger Jewish audience. Some scholars believe that it was written sooner than that, and others say later. But we could be talking possibly 50 years after the death of Jesus. So for those of you who were around in, in the civil rights era of this country, uh, the, remember the, the Kennedy assassination or even the moon landing. It would be like you telling those stories over and over and over again, and then finally, this year, you decided to write it down for others to read it. My dad used to say, son, make sure you always read the fine print. Do you remember those commercials that would come on, uh, usually late at night, and they would hook you in to whatever they were selling, and then all of a sudden, in the last five to seven seconds, some guy comes on there and talks 100 miles an hour, telling you exactly what you have to do to do all the things. I mean, it sounds like an auctioneer. You cannot make any sense out of it. And then people go ahead and sign up for what they really think they know they're getting. Or, or maybe you remember uh, the fine print of a job description. You know, the last words probably the most famous, and other duties as assigned. <laughs> or maybe you remember the 1971 uh, film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, starring Gene Wilder, where all the kids are about to go into this chocolate factory for the first time, but he wants them to sign a contract. And what goes down to the fine print so small that no one can even read it. And Charlie says, what about me, Grandpa? Should I sign? And Grandpa Joe says, sign away, Charlie. You've got nothing to lose. But what about the fine print of discipleship? Do we have anything to lose? Or do we have everything to gain? Jesus does not mince words when he spells out the fine print in our gospel lesson this morning. There are no surprises. He tells us that we are in danger if we continue what he began. There's a mission with a risk. Here are these disciples. They've, they've completed this little three-year confirmation class with Jesus. And finally, the teacher says, so what did you learn? You might get answers like, well, you know, this is how you join the church or learning more about God. If you think about how we do with confirmation or with the confirmation, it's, it's taking the decisions that your parents made and continuing to take the next step yourself. So in this scripture from Matthew's gospel, Jesus has given the disciples authority to cast out evil spirits, to heal people. He's given them the, the charge to share the good boldness of the gospel. And now he's giving them instructions on how to go out and do that work. It's a rite of passage moment. It's a passing of the mantle. The disciples have been with Jesus long enough at this point 
to know what Jesus is about, to know who he was, to know what he stands for and what he will not stand for. Also, what it will take to follow him from this point forward. And now hearing these instructions from their master, the disciples are given the opportunity to confirm this Jesus, to say, yes, we will do this, or to say, no, thank you. Call it a day and head home to their, their families. Do we really take what has been entrusted to us by Christ? Do we really take that seriously? Let's break down a, a few verses. First, you have the opening uh, introduction of our lesson today. Jesus reminds the disciples that students are not greater than their teacher because if they treat me this way, just wait and see how they will treat you. That was kind of a boom, drop the mic moment. But right after the boom, you have the but. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the dark versus the light. When I say to you in the darkness, tell in the light. And I love that imagery. I, I love the children's book that's called Franklin in the Dark. Franklin in the Dark by Paulette Bourgeois and Brenda Clark. And if you're not familiar with it, I used to read it to Quinn all the time when he was a little boy. Now he reads it to me. But um, th throughout the book, this, this turtle doesn't like to get in its shell because he's afraid of the dark. And so he goes on around to meet all these other animals who are afraid of something. A duck that was afraid of water. A lion that was afraid of loud noises. A bird afraid of falling. A polar bear afraid of the cold. All of them figured out some way to overcome their fear. And finally, at the end of the book, Franklin crawls into his shell to go to sleep. And then he turns on a nightlight. Darkness is not really a fun place for many of us. But in this case, in this gospel lesson, Jesus reminds us that God still speaks in dark places. Sometimes there are things that God tells us in the dark that we need to inform in the light. Sometimes God uses us as a nightlight for others. The next thing about this scripture lesson, you have the confessing Christ to others. What exactly does that look like? What exactly does that mean? In verse 32 and 33, Therefore, anyone who acknowledges me before people, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But anyone who denies me before people, I will also deny to my Father in heaven. And then you have the section on family values at the end, which may be very autobiographical of Jesus, considering that a few pages over in chapter 12, Jesus' family wants to talk to him, and he responds, but who is my family? Those of you with me are my family. The, the author of Matthew writes for a community that claims a relationship, a, a kind of kinship 
with one another. And these apostles who gave up everything to follow Jesus. This little community of, of early Christians listens for how God is sending them their own turn to see what they have learned. See how much that they have to give up and, and what the risks are during these encounters they take. Perhaps they've already paid a price for being a disciple of Jesus, especially in their family ties. They could be strained, broken, all because of a new faith commitment. Family ties were even more important at that time. And, and the culture, even than they are today, and broken relationships meant more than hard feelings and spoiled family functions and fights over inheritances. In those days, they could be a matter of life and death. In a culture where family identity and connections protect you from so many of the dangers of life. Jesus sounds as if he's sending his apostles on a very dangerous mission. And it made me think, how dangerous is our mission? I think we're pretty comfortable. Not much risk involved in what we're doing today. Do we pay a price for following Jesus in the 21st century, other than adding more to our calendars? Or maybe there's some of us like the rich young ruler a few pages over in chapter 19, asking questions and not getting the answer we want, and so they just kind of slink away. I'm going to focus on the last half of this lesson today, but I do want to start with trouble in the family. Theologian, author, Barbara Brown Taylor calls part of this story a burr on a burr from Matthew's gospel. One of those passages I wish he had never written down. And she wrestles with the text and she comes out with this elegant understanding and she writes, I'm a daughter, a wife, a sister, an aunt. And each of those identi identities has shaped my life, but none of them have contained me. I am Barbara. I am Christian. I am a child of God. That is my true identity. And all of those other things grow out of that. You are God's child first. That is no role to play. That is who you truly are. We are to love Jesus above all other loves. And that means losing those we love. We are not to fear because buried in the demand of, is a promise that what we lose for his sake, we shall find again, return to us more alive than ever before. Perhaps the part about the sword is the most difficult part, but I'm not sure this is really a literal sword we're talking about. This would go against everything we know about who Christ is. I can't just believe that this would be Jesus' Braveheart moment or Mortal Kombat Jesus. But again, Barbara Brown Taylor comes to the rescue 
and helps by writing this. The gospel is not a table knife, but a sword. It can set free and it can divide. The gospel is powerful stuff, powerful enough to challenge the most sacred human ties. But as frightening as it is, it is not finally to be feared. In the first century, the family had primary importance. So the words of Jesus lifts the call to love him above the greatest good, not the lowest good. And that's how it is with great discipleship. In what ways has the call to follow Jesus changed or not changed who we are, our decision-making in our personal lives? And what about in the life of this church? What things had to give way and what relationships had to be seen in a different light? What is the cost of that decision? Eugene Peterson's beautiful translation of this passage ends with an exquisite summary of Jesus' most encouraging and comforting words, words that encompass both the great issues of life and of death and the smallest moments of compassion and care. He writes, Don't be bluffed into silence by the threats of bullies. There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God, who holds your entire life, body and soul, in his hands. This is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty, for instance. The smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing. In the decades following Jesus' death and resurrection, as the Christian faith spread, families and communities became divided, sometimes violently divided. We have ample accounts from biblical and historical sources of what happened when one member of a family or one family in a community became followers of Jesus Christ because they had changed. They had taken a radically different approach, an approach informed by their faith. Christians were ostracized. Christians were abandoned, rejected, and even killed by their families and communities. The gospel challenged traditions and challenged social norms, and the upholders of these values struck out against those who challenged the status quo. Many times, the people striking out were parents, siblings, former friends, people who made the decision that the norms of the culture were so important to protect that even those close family members could not get away with questioning them with the good news. When faced with this backlash, the new followers of Christ might be tempted to stop, to turn back, to abandon their faith, just to keep the family or social peace, a place more worth on appearance of family or community peace than on the calling of Christ in their lives to take up the cross and follow him. 
So Jesus said, whoever loves mother and father more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Think about two words in that paragraph. The use of the word more and the use of the word worth. It's kind of teaching about values. Jesus doesn't say, whoever loves family instead of me. Jesus says, whoever loves family more than me. This recognizes that sometimes what faith demands puts us in direct conflict with family or cultural traditions in everyday life. We don't have to abandon cultural traditions and norms unless they conflict with what Christ would have us to do. The other word is worth. What makes someone worthy? Jesus said, whoever loves someone or something more than me is not worthy of me. So the me in this statement is Jesus, is Christ, is God. The worth being discussed throughout the passage is worth to God, worth to Christ. Jesus is staking a claim to be the one who ultimately determines worth. Even to the point of Jesus testifying to God about a person's worth. We each know the consequences of standing against a popularly held social value or norm. It could be standing on either side of, of many divisive social issues like war or abortion or torture or welfare reform, equality within the LBGTQ community, capital punishment, immigration, guns, and many, many other social concerns. For some of us, just hearing those words, let alone hearing them in the church, is going to make blood pressure spike. But if we have taken a stand on any issues on any issues in our lives. We know that it can cost us relationally. It can cost us family. It can cost us community and relationships within the community. And sometimes we take a stand because we believe passionately for or against anything that we stand up for. And that same thing happened over 2,000 years ago. It still happens today. Family gatherings around the world were told not to talk about two things, religion and politics. So I wonder if Peter and Andrew or James or John or the rest of them had heard Jesus' instructions and if they had declined his invitation to go out and share the good news of the gospel, I, I wonder if everything that they'd been through with Jesus, would they just have considered it a waste up to that point? Wouldn't everything that they had learned from Jesus about the love of God for all people, regardless of who they are or where they come from, about how the spirit of the law always supersedes the letter of the law, about the dignity and well-being of God's people always being above any religious doctrine or social taboos, wouldn't all of that teaching have become a waste of time if those disciples had just gone home? And I'm wondering the same thing about the church. With more and more people leaving the church or seeing no relevance in going to church or not returning to a community of faith in a post-COVID world and those poor churches going through a United Methodist breakup 
And with so many mainline Protestant congregations declining in number and closing their doors, I wonder, has the church become a waste of time? Well, if it does not push us every Sunday to go out the doors and to be changed, to be different, and to provide community or comfort, then yes, it probably is. Because we know we have to be changed when we leave this place. We Christians, the one who claims to follow Jesus when we go to church, we hear the same instructions about a life of discipleship. It's in church that we sing Jesus' assuring words about God's eye being on the sparrow. It's in church that we learn about how following Jesus might have a consequence of suffering, even to the point of death, but that we were always in God's hands. It's in the church that we hear Jesus' invitation to pick up our cross and follow him into every area of the world's brokenness. It's in the church that we pray for the salvation of our lives by losing them for the sake of Christ. And then we say those words together every Sunday, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And when worship ends, and when we leave the sanctuary and we go out into the world, we're presented with confirming moments, moments for us to confirm or deny Jesus that we experience in the church building. But, but when that confirming moment involves risk, how quickly we're tempted to just dismiss it. Dismiss what we experienced just a few minutes ago in a worship service or when we think we know exactly who Christ is to us. A couple of last thoughts. That whole piece of acknowledging Jesus in verse 32, 33, how do we acknowledge Jesus? I personally don't think this is a who is in and who is out story, especially in light that Jesus tells us that when he was naked, we clothed him. When he was in jail, we visited him. Who are sick, we comforted him. Jesus Christ is what love really looks like as realized in the human flesh. So one way we acknowledge Jesus is how well we love others. And that very last one, those who lose their lives because of me will find them. Maybe this means losing how you define what living really looks like. What is that fuller life in Jesus Christ? What do you have to lose? What do we have to lose? We have a lot to lose by following Christ. But with those of us who are called Christian, recognize ourselves as Christian, would we really want to live any other way? In my Bible, the last two verses has a subtext that says rewards. Well, everyone wants a reward, especially after listening to what Jesus has to tell us in that first part. But finally, we get to verses 40 and 40 to 42. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives a cup of cold water to the little ones 
in the name of a disciple, I truly tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Everybody likes a reward. Everybody likes a little trophy, regardless of how they play the game. But that's not what this is about. There is an emphasis on rewards to be received by those who welcome not only Jesus, but those who represent him. Again, given the mission Jesus was about to send the disciples into, as well as setting the setting of Matthew's readers, it makes a good deal of sense after issuing some fairly clear warnings about the importance of acknowledging Jesus and outlining some of the requirements and the cost of discipleship, Jesus returns the reward for faithfulness and invites his disciples both then and his disciples now to keep their eyes on the prize. What doesn't make sense, at least at first, and in the totally surprising and delightful kind of way, is that last verse. Whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones. It's such a small, small act. After all this talk of rewards, I would have thought there'd be some kind of a concrete action specified. Something bigger. But no, it's just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones. We don't even know who the little ones are. Perhaps it's the children around the most vulnerable surrounding Jesus. Perhaps it's the community Matthew is talking to. Perhaps it's the young in faith, which really has nothing to do with age. But what strikes me is the simplicity of what, what's called for. Just a cup of cold water given to someone in need in the name of a disciple. What might that translate to in our own lives? A hug to someone who is hurting, a listening ear, an encouraging word, a helping hand, volunteering at the homeless shelter, diaper bank, food pantry, not only handing out a care bag at a stoplight, but perhaps as you roll down your window to say, my name is so-and-so, what's yours? Offering your time and money to a charity or advocacy group. I don't know, but I suspect there are many, many opportunities to offer cups of cold water almost everywhere we look. Offering minor acts of compassion, small gestures of grace. I would think that has to be one of the keys. Because in the end, when you reach out with the love of Christ to one another, that is never a small gesture. So don't lose sight of our purpose. Don't lose sight of our challenge and what Christ has asked us to continue. His ministry and mission in a broken world to inspire love, to embrace Christ, and to engage the world. So think about how we're doing. How are we doing as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, what changes are each of us going to have to make to make that relationship stronger? What sacrifices will we be able to make to say, yes, Jesus, I meant what I said and I love you enough to take those risks. What is God calling to do today? John Bowie wrote a hymn for his children's confirmation. And I just want to sing one verse and you all know it. Oh, Jesus, I have promised 
to serve thee to the end. Be forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. O oh, Jesus, I have promised to all who follow thee that where thou art in glory, there shall thy servant be. And Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. O oh, give me grace to follow my master and my friend. Amen.